You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. Good morning, everybody. So you may not know this, but this is unexpected. Me being up here this morning, um, I'm not supposed to be today's preacher. Uh, our, today's preacher is supposed to be our dear friend and sister, Jess Lyons. And so, um, but she, you know, the thing that we've all been worried about for the last two and a half years, testing positive for, that happened this morning. And uh, thankfully, she wrote a beautiful manuscript. So, uh, I am here, not pretending to be Jess, but I am going to speak her words because they are worth hearing for everyone. And I'm going to skip the introduction because that would be very weird for me to read. Um, So consider this the alternate introduction. Uh, But Jess and Reed have been part of the church for about a year, and uh, Jess has great teaching gifts, as you'll you'll hear as I read her sermon today. Uh, But let's pray as we begin. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for the work that you're doing in this church. We thank you for guiding our steps always, in every peak, in every valley, in every transition, in every opportunity, in every challenge, you are our guide. So Lord, as we look at your word together today, may the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in maybe his most famous work, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer returns to the theme of self-denial over and over again. I think Keith mentioned a few weeks ago that it almost feels like too much when you read it. His words are deeply convicting and they often feel like too much to swallow. But as we see today, Christ does not leave us to our own devices as we walk in discipleship, even though it is hard. So here's a quote from Bonhoeffer. And if we answer the call to discipleship, where will it lead us? What decisions and partings will it demand? To answer this question, we shall have to go to him, for only he knows the answer. Only Jesus Christ, who bids us to follow him, knows the journey's end. But we do know that it will be a road of boundless mercy. Discipleship means joy. So as we uh, enter this next section of the Sermon on the Mount, I found myself thinking a lot about self-denial. Especially the last few weeks, we've seen Christ's challenge to push the reward and approval of the world to the side and move towards the kingdom of God. In resisting anger and hate and lust and in loving our enemies and in checking our motives in prayer, we are challenged to deny bits of ourselves and rely instead on God's grace. And today we approach another section of scripture and lean into trust yet again. So the scripture is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Like I said, self-denial, hard teaching. So here we have three images, three metaphors colliding together to help us focus on a theme that feels pretty familiar so far in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus caring about the people that we are becoming. As Jonathan Pennington states, passages like this call us to see the organic connection between the inside and the outside of the person and the necessity of integration or wholeness in order for true righteousness. We've talked a lot about this already, right? We want the insides to match the outsides. That's what true righteousness looks like. Before we go any further, I want to see the heart of Christ and the invitation to step into wholeness. As we move through this passage, keep in mind this, this is an idea, this idea of whole integrated lives. So each word picture poses two options for the audience. Heaven versus earth, take, take one or the other. Light versus darkness, and God versus money. The first section we see Jesus calling us to turn our eyes to the eternal rather than the temporal. Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The treasures of this earth do not last. This feels like a straightforward argument for how to invest our time and our money and our devotion. But beyond the simplest argument for not wasting our time, our treasure communicates something significant about who we are. The idea of treasure refers to stuff, money, material things, entertainment, etc. But it also includes a desire to acquire. Familiar with this desire? The desire to acquire. Scott McKnight remarks that our treasure is measured by where and on what we spend our energies. And it indicates where our heart is or where the center of our passion is. Our spending habits matter. Our time investments matter. Our accumulation of stuff matters. Not because there's necessarily a right or wrong kind of stuff. There's not a ready-made list of things that Christians should or shouldn't buy necessarily. But instead, God cares about the integrity of our hearts. He asks us, what do you value most? Is it life with me? Is it righteousness? Is it holiness? Is it care for neighbor? Is it justice? Is it mercy? Okay, that's what you say you value, but now look at what you buy. Look at what you watch. Look at how you spend your free time. Do those things match with the answers to the first questions? As we take a general inventory of our lives, it's not about legalism or that mystical checklist of do's and don'ts. It is about integrated, whole life in Jesus. We said that at the beginning. God wants us to be singular-minded people, not splintered and divided between two passions. So we see this emphasized in verse 22. The Greek word translated as healthy is haplous. Other translations 
don't translate it necessarily healthy. They also say whole or sound or clear or good or generous or single. And we can see the connection here to the previous section of verses. A healthy eye is a generous eye. Romans 12.8 uses the same root of haplus, that same word, about giving generously. Healthy eyes, holistic eyes, produce light in us and reflect the nature of our hearts. Throughout Scripture, the eye and the heart are often used in tandem, the eye and the heart. Look at Ephesians 1.18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Open my eyes, Psalm 119, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your love. And then returning to the Beatitudes from the beginning of this sermon series in January, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So this connection between the heart and the eyes comes up over and over in Scripture. And like the Proverbs and other wisdom literature, these verses pose an either-or option, not in between. Either our hearts and eyes are holy on Christ and filled with light, might this be the presence of Christ himself? Or we have divided unhealthy hearts that know darkness or the absence of his presence. And how great is that darkness, as verse 23 states. And now we come to the, the climax verse of this section of the sermon. To wrap up the previous four verses, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew's main point. Whole living means you cannot serve God and something else, anything else. Specifically here, money. And money itself isn't the whole issue. Money itself is not inherently evil. First Timothy reminds us that the love of money, again, it's about our heart and our motivation, is the root of evil. But we all know that money can also be a powerful resource and tool. Having just celebrated Easter, we think of Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy disciple of Jesus. And in Matthew 27, 57, it calls, him, uh, it calls him a rich disciple of Jesus. It calls him both. So money and following Jesus are not necessarily mutually exclusive, but as we all know well, we've seen Christian leaders abuse and flaunt their money, sometimes in obnoxious ways. Just this week, there was an article from the writer Caitlin Beatty about the need for a renewed emphasis on financial modesty. In this article, she lays out the uh, unseemly amounts of money spent on frivolous things within a church leadership context. $13,000 on high tea service. $150,000 on three-day luxury vacation for friends and family. Is that, is that, I, I mean, I'm not, I know I haven't been voted in yet, but it, okay. <laughs> just checking, just checking. All right, $37,000 on flowers, and then here's the best one. $16,000 on custom skateboards. We may find ourselves rolling our eyes and feeling a little self-righteous about how we spend our money. Well, at least I didn't spend $16,000 on skateboards. 
But I imagine most of us in this room restrain ourselves from the $100,000 vacations, perhaps. But Beatty warns us against this concept of our or my money, period. As Americans, we're primed to think that how we spend our money, our money, that's what we call it, is up to the individual. And that no one should judge how someone else spends theirs, so long as they do so legally and remembering to give charitably here and there. Call it financial relativism. If only it was this simple for Christians. The rather inconvenient thing about the Christian tradition, especially inconvenient for those of us living in one of the wealthiest countries the world has ever known, is that money is a spiritual matter. And it's a communal spiritual matter. Our money is not really ours. All that we have belongs to God and is given in order to bless others, not to hoard or just to enjoy for ourselves. So what, what is our response here? How do we walk towards this wholehearted life with Christ? I'm sure many of us have read these verses or heard them preached and walked away with some tension in our soul. Does it mean I need to sell everything and live without possessions or any comforts? Should I be the guy living in the van down by the river? Thanks be to God, there is no formula for it, but there is a, maybe a helpful summary. Jesus' message can be reduced to these ideas. Live simply. Live simply. Possessions are mysteriously and deceptively idolatrous. Trust God. How's that? Live simply. Know that any possession can be mysteriously and deceptively idolatrous and trust God. The section is full of prohibitive language. Don't do that. Much of the Sermon on the Mount actually is, and it can feel like a heavy burden to bear, though I don't sense that that's how it's come across as we've walked really slowly through it together. But this is a responsibility and a really high calling. So like, look at these patterns in the sermon, and this is what's coming next. We have prohibition and metaphors related to the prohibitions. And then we have the Heavenly Father's care. Every time there's a, there's a mention of what we need to do, what we need to not do, what we need to stray away from, it's always followed up with the care of the Father. The care of the Father. We're not in this alone. We're not called to do this stuff by just pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We are called to follow God and to lean into his mercy together. When Jesus calls us into holy living, he follows up with care. And we'll see the next weeks in the continuation of this series that trust in God is where true reward lies. And as Andrew reminded us a few weeks ago, just reading the page, working toward a reward isn't necessarily bad. But what reward? These temporal things that moths and thieves take away? No. Instead, how about peace and open hands with our stuff and our money and our time? He's not necessarily calling all of us to radical poverty or denouncement of all material things. He's calling us to simplicity. A whole life, an integrated interior and exterior with simpler, healthier options for a human. Do you hear the care there from God? What he wants for us? His desire for us is not just restriction and rigidity. How many different things can I say no to today to make myself feel bad? That's not what it's all about. 
It's freedom. Freedom from a divided heart and soul. And freedom into an abundant life with Christ. Freedom from a divided heart and freedom into an abundant, overflowing life with Jesus. Personally, that I think this is the secret sauce of the Sermon on the Mount. That's Jess's words. We see these Matthean sermon themes of singular devotion and whole person integration as high callings and high standards. God in Christ has raised the bar, upped the ante, imparted us with greater responsibility, whatever you want to call it. And though it may feel more complicated, more ambiguous to describe how, I think this is the kind and beautiful part of life with Christ. We're not left with a formula for duplicating these kingdom practices in our context. We're left with ongoing, personal, relationally driven heart work. This kind of work and formation requires connection. It takes practice, listening, learning, reflecting, repenting, responding. It takes self-denial and a desire to be shaped by God's grace. This is the beautiful work and care of our God. He calls us to big things, yes, but he promises intimate care for us along the way. We'll see even more of that in the next section of Matthew 6. Christ shows us the way of whole integrated living. To be fully devoted to him and singularly focused on God's best, <clears throat> best and abundant life. This gives God glory. But it's also for us. A divided life is one of strain and con- discontentment. It's disconnected and splintered. A life wholly centered on Christ, connected to the Father, led by the Holy Spirit, that produces mercy, that produces justice, that produces kindness, that produces humility. You know, all the good treasure in heaven kind of stuff. With Christ as our source of all satisfaction, we are able to glimpse the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Imagine what kind of personal formation that can do for a community. Imagine the relationships that are impacted by this wholehearted posture towards Christ. It's no accident that the greatest commandment which is rich with whole heart language. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. It's it's no, no accident that that is connected to the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. As we grow in simplified and singular devotion to Jesus, we bring him glory, absolutely. We personally grow, mature, and find freedom. But taking it one step further, when our insides and our outsides match, we love our neighbors differently. The personal integrity that is formed within us is a sign of the work of the Spirit. And then comes peace and joy and goodness and then gentleness within our disagreements and faithfulness in our work, kindness to our kids, patience with our extended family members. The fruit of the Spirit is not a spiritual high-five for being cool and righteous. They are markers of an integrated living that deeply impacts our relationships and our communities. And the bonus gift is Christ's desire to continue with us in this righteousness process. We're not left to discern alone. None of us is left to figure this out alone. Jesus says, go figure it out yourselves. 
We are cared for, and we are walked beside, and we are led. And as we daily strive for singular, whole life in Christ, he is near. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being near to us. Thank you for shaping us. Desiring the best for us. Desiring wholeness. Desiring that we become the type of people who you have created us to be. People of your kingdom. And Lord, we thank you that today we get to celebrate new life in the kingdom. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we each get to remember the new life that you've given to to us. And Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit will continue to guide us each and every day as we seek to walk it out more completely, moment by moment. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Riverside Church. For more resources, visit riverside.church.